happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, friends! I'm Robert Evans, and this is once again Behind the Bastards, the show where we tell you everything you don't know about the very worst people in all of history. Uh, Today we're talking about the worst people in all of history, the Nazis. Uh, Or rather, we're talking about how Nazism and fascism got started in America way, way back in the day. And Mm -hmm. my guest with me for this debatably topical podcast episode, (laughs) Cody Johnson, Katie Stoll, how are y'all doing today? Well, you know, living in a fascist country you know <laughs> well i mean 30 percent of the way there I'm getting there it's like it's you know, like we've got time it's the national equivalent of when i was a kid and i would get a new video game and i would start installing it and i would know it was going to take like three hours <laughs> yeah. because mm-hmm. my computer wasn't that great but it's like it's on its way mm-hmm. right right <laughs> it's not yeah. so you find something else to do to yeah. sort of distract you yeah. but you also keep going into check in like is it done yet is it done yet exactly we're we're doing the national equivalent of watching starship troopers for the 37th time right. while we wait for age of empires 3 to download and then yeah. uh, half the country watches starship troopers 2 and is like this is a good idea for society i like this i really like that you picked starship troopers 2 right. oh oh sorry you were saying T.O.O. I was oh. thinking about the classic sequel to Starship Troopers 2. I also mm. Starship that Troopers too. 2. <laughs> <laughs> Fine film. Fine film. <laughs> yeah, so that's what it's like. Yeah. So have you all ever wondered what the very first American fascism was like? How it got here? Like, was it a kind of thing of like, it, you know, got imported from Europe? Or like, did it, it boil up naturally? Like, I assumed it's like, I mean, the KKK was one yeah. of the first sure, like, you could fascist say that. groups yeah, probably. Kind of a, proto-fascist group. I always just assumed it was a natural evolution of our shittiness. Yeah, and I know, like, the Nazis crafted a lot of their policies on some American Mm -hmm. policies. uh, Yeah. I mean, that was more like they got the idea for how to set up the Zyklon B gas chambers from, like, in El Paso. We have for people coming in from Mexico a station to de-louse them, and the Nazis Mm -hmm. were like, oh, with a couple modifications, you can just kill people (laughs) in this thing. (laughs) 
yeah, wasted yeah. opportunity there. Yeah, what if we change the word delos <laughs> to just, uh, yeah. yeah. So this is more about ideology in sort of how how fascism, yeah, how it first crept up in America. So if y'all will indulge me. Yeah, fascism uh, loves pleasure. to creep up. Yeah, it, it sure it's does. It's a creeper. All right, I'm going to read you guys 20 pages of awesome. stuff. Awesome. A horror story. Mm-hmm. In 1921, 12 years before Adolf Hitler would become Germany's all-powerful Fuhrer, the National Socialist German Workers' Party had roughly 2,000 members. Uh, so it's a well-established fact that fascism can rise to dominate a democratic nation from relatively humble beginnings. Mm. Uh, keep that in mind as we talk about the birth of the American fascist movement in the United States, because more than anything, this is a story about how close the USA came to going down Germany's path. The first fascist government on earth was formed in late 1922 when Benito Mussolini and his black shirts marched on Rome with the stated goal of bringing order to an Italy that seemed on the verge of political chaos and collapse. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. interesting. King Victor Emmanuel allowed Benito to form a government and fascists around the world were electrified by the seeming endorsement of their quirky little belief system. And you got to remember when we talk about this, fascism wasn't like now 75 million people died. And so right. we're like, oh boy, <laughs> that's right, right. something to try right, at that point, they're like, oh, fascism. Fasc- Maybe this works. I don't know. I feel, I feel these things. Yeah. So, like, what's... It would be nice if just one angry guy could do everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> could hurt well, all the people I hate. And I, <laughs> that not... seems efficient. Yeah. <laughs> I will not it bother imagining the logical conclusion of these beliefs, yeah. but uh, I'm into it. So, like pizza and the chef kiss gesture, oh, yeah. Yeah, fascism first came to America courtesy of the Italians, or at least the first fascist group in America was formed by Italian-Americans. They started organizing in New York and Philadelphia mainly in 1921, which is, you know, when Mussolini's party had started to gain power in Italy, but before they were totally in charge. Mussolini's government was instantly more interested in using the fascist movement in America to further Italian foreign policy goals. Uh, He didn't seem to care much about actually bringing up fascism in the USA. Dogs get angry when you talk about fascism, Mm -hmm. because they're good. In 1924, Mussolini sent Count Ignazio Theon de Ravel to the United States to organize several disparate and quarrelsome groups of Italo-fascists into the Fascist League of North America. Oh. Uh, Yeah, cool. This is the first American fascist organization. These guys primarily positioned themselves as against, quote, atheism, internationalism, free love, communism, and class hatred. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. I will not comment on any similarities to any sort of ideology. We can save that for later. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we'll do that again. Mm. So now 1924 was a kind of a banner year in fascism. It was also the year Hitler spent in prison putting the finishing touches on Mein Kampf. Mm. And it was the year that the National Socialist Teutonia Association was founded in Detroit, Michigan. So the first American Nazis, Detroit. (gasps) Wow. Shout out to Detroit. Not a positive, like an angry, like Detroit, like that kind of Yeah, like I'm shouting out, Detroit! Detroit! Not super surprising. No. No, I mean. Nothing so far super surprising. (laughs) Now, the NSTA pledged open support of the German Nazi party. Most of its members were recent immigrants to America from Germany, actual Nazis who'd fled in the wake of the beer hall putsch, so they wouldn't go to prison for trying to overthrow the German government. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The NSTA was mainly a way to raise funds for Hitler's Nazi party from sympathetic German-Americans. So at this point, neither of the actual growing fascist movements in Germany or Italy was interested in trying to convert Americans to fascism. When the Italian FLNA proved troublesome, Mussolini's government ordered it disbanded in 1929, leaving its 12,500 members and 80 branch offices to find some other reactionary political organization. <laughs> Good news, there's about to be a ton. <laughs> yeah. I know you, I could see you were worried I was, about yeah, that. Yeah, wide-eyed waiting for that. <laughs> now, 
European fascists were actually something of a hindrance to the early efforts of American fascist thinkers and activists to organize. In 1931, as the Nazi Party crept into power in Germany, their foreign office formed an official Nazi Party branch in New York City and at the same time dissolved the NSTA in order to create Gauleitung USA or District Headquarters USA. So the Teutonia Association folded and Gau USA was briefly the home of American Nazism. But as Hitler gained absolute power, it became clear to the Nazis that the existence of an American Nazi Party was not helpful to their their goals. It kind of made them look like an evil empire based, you know, on world <laughs> domination. You know, I, I, when you put it like that, I can see why they'd be concerned about that. You might be suspicious that. about yeah. the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Smart so, cookies. Yeah. They weren't dumb. Oh. <laughs> they were about some things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, like, giving coats to their soldiers and sure. stuff. They're, sure, effect, sure. they're effective in, in their goals. They were good at, yeah. in 1933, they were firing on all cylinders. We all have our strengths. <laughs> yeah. So. Now, in 1933, the German Nazi party had Gau USA declared defunct and opened up the Friends of Germany. Its goals would be to build support for the Third Reich in the U.S. and to spread Nazi propaganda, but not to bring Nazism to the United States in any organized way. The worldwide depression is often credited with the rise of the Nazi party in Germany, although the extent to which that's true is kind of debatable. Uh, it definitely had an impact on the spread of fascist thought in Europe and in the United States. The first truly American fascist intellectual was a man named Lawrence Dennis. Now, he started out as a child evangelist who attended Harvard as a young man and worked briefly in the Foreign Service before working as a journalist for the New Republic and the Nation. In 1932, in the depth of the Depression, he wrote his first book, Is Capitalism Doomed? Lawrence worried that it was, and that the void left by its absence would be filled by something tremendously destructive, like communism. Readers oh. of Dennis's first book walked away with the distinct impression that fascism would be preferable to communism, since the choice was inevitable. <laughs> yeah. I love how, and especially today, you talk to people and you hear people discuss these things. They're like, if you had to choose between fascism and socialism, you'd choose fascism. But you can't say it out loud. But it's true. You would. Nope. <laughs> you can look at like USSR versus Tsarist Russia. Obviously, a lot of horrible things done by the USSR, but also for most of the people in it, probably better than life in Tsarist Russia. Mm. Then you look right. at Nazi Germany versus the Weimar Republic. Why would I bother looking at those things? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the Friends of Germany recruited 5,000 members from between 1933 and 1935. This made them comparable in size to the American Communist Party at the same time. But the Friends of Germany also drew negative attention from U.S. Congress for its armed division, the OD, and for the fact that many of its members were German nationals living in the United States. The German government quickly folded and ordered all its citizens to leave the Friends of New Germany. The organization was dissolved in 1936 and absorbed by another organization, the German-American Bund. Now, this is the one okay. that people have heard of. Yes, yeah, I have heard yeah. of the Bund. Yeah. Now, the Bund was led by Fritz Julius Kuhn, a German-born man who'd fought for the Kaiser in World War I and fought for the Nazis in the streets prior to Hitler's rise to power. He'd moved to Mexico in 1923 and then moved to the United States. Fritz Kuhn had joined the Friends of New Germany in 1933 and become a citizen in 34. So the Bund was not officially a fascist organization. Their stated purpose was to build support for Nazi Germany in the USA, a description for a pro-America rally they hosted, 
notes that, quote, the Bund is opposed to all isms in American public life, including Nazism and fascism, regarding these political systems as affairs of the people who live under them, supported as they are by upward of 95% of the electors and nationwide plebiscites, but impracticable and inexpedient innovations in the American system of government. <laughs> people really love fascism, but we're not fans of fascism. We're not advocating it, but people are happy with it. But trust us, yeah. A lot of people are saying, but... Uh... A lot of people are saying it's the best kind of government. Not us. Not us, no way. But a lot of people. And there are fine people on all sides. You didn't have to squint hard to see Nazism in the Bund's messaging. Quote, the Bund opposes Zionism as an infectious disease gnawing at the core of American political, social, and economic life, covering an ever-widening field of activities, which have already developed a power of American life which cannot be shaken off as long as Jews control the press, the radio, the screen, and the stage. Uh. That feels pretty explicit. <laughs> that feels a little Nazi, doesn't it? That's, um, yeah, that's, I would say that's more than a little Just a, Nazi. Just a smidge fashy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, 19 1936, the year the Bund was founded, was the year of another American fascist landmark. Lawrence Dennis published his second book, The Coming American Fascism. His basic argument was that fascism was preferable to communism and the depression had proved that capitalism could not possibly continue. Most of his arguments had to do with economics and the fact that he felt the current debt-based state of the global economy was unsustainable. I found a review of his book published in Foreign Affairs magazine. It stated simply, the author of Is Capitalism Doomed repeats his conviction that fascism is coming and that it will do good. Hmm. Not a great prediction. Historically, it didn't, didn't, didn't quite work out that way. But definitely a prediction. But, but a prediction. So let's give him credit for saying for words out, out loud. Yeah. Yeah, he did no. say some words. He's just, you know, just tossing things on the wall, and yeah. if they stick... Well, a lot of people are going to die. A lot of people. (laughs) Tens of millions will be burned alive. Lawrence grew more and more renowned. He booked speaking engagements all around the country, talked at colleges, and published journals advocating an end to capitalist democracy. One left-wing paper at the time described him as, quote, the tall, swarthy prophet of intellectual fascism. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. As Lawrence Dennis's example shows, American fascism was not exported by foreign powers. It actually grew far too quickly for the Italian fascist and Nazi parties to even manage. In 1933, a former Hollywood screenwriter named William Dudley Pelly founded the Silver Legion of America, the first explicitly fascist and truly American organization. Wow. And, yeah, Pelly was... A pretty good pick for an American Hitler. If you're looking for a guy who's kind of similar and mm-hmm. tries to do the same thing, mm-hmm. he's a pretty solid pick. He had been a moderately successful screenwriter in Hollywood and made the modern equivalent of about $1.5 million for the various films that he'd written. He'd earlier spent time as a war correspondent in Russia and had developed a tremendous fear of the Bolsheviks along with a profoundly anti-Semitic worldview. Mm. All this made him feel guilty about his life of excess in Hollywood's golden era. On May 29, 1928, he had a profound religious experience. Here's a quote from the wonderful book, Hitler's American Friends, that inspired part of this podcast. Quote, he experienced a vision of being whisked away through a bluish mist. He regained consciousness lying on a marble slab next to two men who began to reveal the secrets of the universe. Among these was the revelation that death was only temporary and that all human beings are reincarnated to proceed up a ladder to higher existence. Even more important, Pelly reported, the men told him that he would receive additional revelations in the future. Claiming himself to have been reborn, Pelly declared that when he woke up the next morning, his physical appearance had changed. Lines had disappeared from his face and he appeared more relaxed. The great release, as Pelly called it, put his life on a new course. I mean, that sounds like Buddhist or something. Like yeah. Having some sort of an epiphany. Where, yeah. 
I'm it, excited for him. I'm, I'm excited for that <laughs> inner peace that he's he's found. I feel like this is going to go good directions. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let's read the next paragraph. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. He opened a spiritualist journal and gained more than 10,000 subscribers eager to read his opinions on automatic writing and clairvoyance. Most of his followers at this point were women, and their donations supported the opening of Galahad Press in 1931. His anti-Semitism and paranormal beliefs gradually coalesced into a thoroughly American kind of fascism. The Silver Legion was formed in the hopes that it would sweep American politics, and they were called the Silver Legion because they wore silver shirts with a big L on them that stood for, <laughs> I think, loyalty and life and legion. And here's here's Losers. a picture of these guys. They all look like Gavin McGinnis oh if he shaved God. his beard. <laughs> they sure do. It's all. It's just replace the L with a pocket protector. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever. Nothing changes. ever changes. My goodness. <laughs> Pelly's goal was a new fascist state where all property was held by the government and every citizen was a stockholder in the nation. This would guarantee everyone a healthy basic income that would rise if they did things to help the state, like serve in the military. Mm. Only white citizens could own stock in the United States. Sure. Black Americans would be re-enslaved in order to provide the free labor <laughs> Pelly system what? needed to oh work. My God. I, I gotta know. tell you... <laughs> <laughs> how such does, an immediate turn. <laughs> how does he not realize that's taking him down the ladder? He's going away from his growth. It's like, oh yeah, basic income. That's a thing that might be. Ro- oh no, that's not <laughs> a slow creep of fascism. <laughs> that's a real. It's slow throughout the three sentences in that oh, paragraph. God. <laughs> uh, Man, re-enslaved is not no the such best. a matter of fact tossing that out there <laughs> oh we're not done uh. oh good pelly called his dream of a new nation the christian commonwealth and he described its financial system as christian economics he saw huh. jewish people as the main obstacle to this dream when the commonwealth was established pelly said a secretary of jewry would be appointed to restrict jewish people to a single city per state <laughs> Grumble, grumble, so grumble. So this is a very American, fa- it's fascism, but it's very clearly on similar lines to what Hitler's saying, but it is also in a lot of ways a very different and much sure. more American yeah. sort of yeah. and very much based around white identity kind of fascism. So this is the first autochthonic fascism that we have in the United States, the first time it arises from within us as opposed to just Germans and Italians. Right, it's not being imported. It's yeah. like someone's like, I like this. I'm going to start my I'm own. I'm going to put my yeah, own spin like, on it. What if yeah. it's like that, but like it's a little like, funky? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the Taco Bell of fascism. Sure. When an American was like, this is cool. What if I make it terrible and easily spreadable? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But also, like, in this scenario, the original taco is, like, a pile of shit yeah. as well. The original taco is massacring millions. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a great taco. Not not a great thing to take inspiration yeah. from. It's a but... botulism taco. Mm. Yeah. Tacoism? No. Mm. no. Taco Bell, we are looking for someone else to plug for no money. Yes, uh, please. So... If, if you want us to stop <laughs> making references to botulism in your products, give us some double you crunch better hurry because we're going to do it a lot more. <laughs> yeah, we will. So Pelly knew the chief marketing lever he had to pull to sell his brand of Yankee Doodle fascism was fear of Marxism. That was nice. Thank you. There we go. Thank Finally, you. I was yeah. like, when are we going to talk about Marxism? When are we going to talk about <laughs> Marxism? Right now, yes. I found a copy of one of the recruiting pamphlets, "The Reds Are Upon Us." Yes, it's a guide for how sponsors of the Silver Shirt movement can create new fascist cells within the. United States. So it was meant to be read out to groups of people to convert them. And this will be on our site if you've been like, I could stand to read (laughs) some like 1930s honest American fascism propaganda. Just for pleasure. Just for fun. I was going to do some canvassing, but maybe I'll canvass about this. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'll take this literature around. It's it's what I did instead of write Christmas cards this year. There you go. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good use of time. Mm -hmm. 
So it's actually really cleverly organized. It starts off by harping on the dangers of communism, but then a couple of pages in, it portrays communism as a fundamentally different from not capitalism or from Americans, but Gentiles. So it starts just talking about communism, and then it introduces the idea that communism is something fundamentally opposed to being a Gentile. So mm. it, 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 it makes that clever little shift before it starts talking about Jewish people in any way. Sure, sure. Yeah. 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 So here's a quote from the pamphlet. The Gentile says to himself, there are by known public count less than 100 registered communists right here in my own city. Why should I get excited about a number so silly? That is precisely why the Communist Party is out in the open, to make the average Gentile think there is really nothing to get excited about. Now, the pamphlet continues to state that the real work of communism is promoted in ways, quote, gullible Christian Americans won't recognize. According to the Silver Legion, Communism is not a small movement in the U.S. at all. Quote, Chief Pelley's personal estimate is that there are something like 22 million, or one-fifth of our whole population. It continues, after researching the matter for 10 or more years, he finds that first of all, we must take our total Jewish population into account. Our Jewish population constitutes the main backbone of communism, secretly oh, or in the open. My... Goodness. Does it make you feel better to know he doesn't think that all Jewish people are fundamentally communists? He just thinks that they are required by their religion to do whatever their rabbi says, and all rabbis are communists. You know, it doesn't make me feel (laughs) better, actually. I I appreciate the rephrasing, but, you know... Yeah, flashy. it's a nice attempt. I agree. Yeah. I don't. It doesn't make me feel super great. It's putting a uh, bow on the fascism a little yeah. bit. Yeah, you get a you get a taco, yeah. and uh, it's based on shit, yeah. and you mm-hmm. put a bow on yeah. it. And uh, that bow is maybe like made of shit. Maybe the bow is made of shit. Maybe it's really just a pile of shit on top yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, yeah. a, a, a shit bow. A dog that ate a bow and then pooped it out. That's exactly what That's it is. Exactly so it is, is partially intact. There's a bow there. It's mm-hmm. covered in digested food stuff, yeah. though, and bacteria. But it's also yeah. spray painted silver. So, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it is the silver shirts. Exactly. <laughs> oh, what a fun. We have fun, don't History is <laughs> a hoot and a holler. Dislike. So people who've spent some time reading their Hitler will notice that this is, yeah, a pretty similar thought process to what led him to invade the USSR, the idea that Bolshevism and Judaism are like inherently oh, yeah. tied together. That kind of thinking found a warm home in parts of the United States. Pelly was most popular in the Pacific Northwest, particularly Washington hmm. and Oregon, and the Midwest. Pelly said he had 50,000 followers within a few months of starting the Silver Shirts. This is almost certainly an exaggeration, <laughs> but it's like the organization had about 15,000 members at any point in time during its height. Okay. So not tiny, but not giant in the no, context sure. of the whole yeah. country. In 1937, the Nazi Party's World Service sent Hitler a memo informing him that Pelly had risen to become one of the, quote, national men of American politics mm. and one of the first native fascists in the country. It was noted that his movement might even be a better way to gain U.S. support for Nazi policies than the Bund. The Nazis pushed a little bit of money Pelly's way. It's possible that Hitler's house up in the Pacific Palisades, that, like, Nazi compound that is a graffiti sanctuary and beautiful hiking. <laughs> that was the silver shirts. They're the guys who bought oh, that. Oh, it was? And it's very possible, although not confirmed, that that was bought with money that was sent by the German Nazi yeah. party. Mm. We don't know. It was registered in the name of someone who probably didn't exist. Like mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah, all, yeah, it's a big yeah, mess. Yeah. I forgot that that's out there. Yeah, it, it's a really beautiful hike. Check out the house that this American fascist <laughs> built. It has a 20,000 gallon fuel tank. I wonder what they were oh, planning interesting, for. Interesting, interesting. Huh. Uh, yep, that's right. I remember that. Have. Really neat. Yeah. Huh. Okay, so uh, we, we, when we get back, we're going to talk about how talk radio helped inculcate fascism 
in America. Mm. Oh, this is exciting. 80 something years ago. But before we do that, <laughs> we should talk about products and services. Oh, yes. I would like those. Yeah. Both products and services. Both of them. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, uh, and I just want to shame our producer, uh, Sophie, for throwing out a couple of mini, mini pizza bagels. Just because uh, they weren't not, defrosted. Just because they weren't defrosted. Tossed out a salad recently. Shameful. 
shameful. We're going to food waste shame you. you know yes. Frost? <laughs> and if time. you're a listener at home, throw some food in the trash, and you can feel more of what it's like to be in this room. Mm-hmm. Also have Lysol scrubbing wipes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only scrubbing wipes on the table in front of us. Some Star Magazine, some InTouch mm-hmm. Magazine. Uh this is just audience ad- interaction. Adver- <laughs> advertising by default. Just whatever's around us are the products we uh, sell. Altoids are in here. Yeah. Yeah. Scotch yeah. tape. Hi-o microphone stands. That's a concerning name for a microphone it stand. It sure is. Wow. Every time micro- I see it. Microphones are kind of always sig highling. Yeah. They are saluting. I. The, it, it bears looking into why, why they are named Heil, and maybe you should put a picture of these stands up so the <laughs> listeners know what we're talking yeah. about. Shots fired at the company who provides our <laughs> microphone stands. <laughs> okay, so yet another source of native Nazism, or at least fascism, in the United States was the famed radio priest, Father Charles Coughlin. Yes. Coughlin had been born in Canada in 1891 and wound up in America on assignment from the Catholic Church. He started his radio career in 1926, speaking out against a rash of cross burnings by the KKK. He was actually victimized himself by the Klan shortly after he moved to Michigan. His radio show proved riotously popular, and by 1931, he was probably the largest radio star in the world and maybe the largest radio star in history. At his peak, Coughlin was reaching roughly 29 million American listeners per broadcast. The only other broadcaster who's ever come close is Rush Limbaugh at 20 million. Jeez. So Coughlin, wow, so still. Yeah, and there was 100 million Americans. Right, so I was going to say, like, yeah. this, third is like the, of the this country. is the 30s, right? Yeah, 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 a third of the country is That's listening nuts. to this guy. That is nuts. Like, again, he's probably the most popular any single radio personality has yeah. ever been. Now, Coughlin started out angrily decrying the KKK and moved on to attacking the banks. As the Great Depression kicked off, he railed against both capitalist excess and godless communism. Mm-hmm. By 1931, the focus of most of his ire were the international bankers who'd started World War I. The term international mm. bankers was, of course, seen by many as a synonym for the term Jews. Could we put some parentheses around that? <laughs> they, they are. They're, 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 every time I can't type international bankers right. and not put parentheses around it. It your just compu- it, your computer does it automatically. Yeah, it just, it like, just does it automatically. We know what's going on. That's, in, that's the Clippy. Clippy just right. Knows. Clippy. Yeah. I hear you. If uh, used seems the, like you're dog whistling anti-Semitism. <laughs> Would you like to add some parentheses? <laughs> Would you like to add some parentheses? Oh, Clippy. Oh, Clippy. No. Clippy. Why are you doing? Oh, oh God. <laughs> He just starts shouting 1488 all over my document. <laughs> now, CBS wound up kicking Father Coughlin off the air after hmm. his Jew baiting got a little bit too hardcore. Sure. NBC refused to pick up his show, so Father Coughlin created the Radio League of the Little Flower, where for the cost of $1 a year, users could support Coughlin in his screaming at the people they hated. This allowed him to buy time on 11 and eventually 27 stations across the country. He was paying something like a quarter of a million dollars a week to run his radio stations. That's how much money is coming into this fucking radio priest. And so they were paying for it to be out everywhere. 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 So like a little Patreon. Yeah, like it is. Right. It is. It's exactly that. He was it's, ahead of his time. He was basically using Patreon to fund his radio show so that he could say what he wanted with no restrictions. Mm-hmm. Wow. And <laughs> I'm going to give you one guess as to where he turns when there's no restrictions on him. <laughs> Towards is. the light? No. Like a pyre, maybe. Oh, yeah. A furnace. Like a burning cross. Like a burning cross. Well, he was against the KKK. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, like it's yeah. not. At least, at Fascists least, can least, hate each other. At least he was against the KKK. Yeah. <laughs> now, in 1932, Father Coughlin endorsed Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the DNC. He did this because he was essentially trying to push FDR to fix the Depression, and he was very vocal about this. He wanted FDR to fix the Depression by minting gold and silver coins in order to create inflation, which would reduce debt and unemployment. 
So Coughlin turned on FDR when he became president because FDR didn't do any of this. Uh, in 1934, the Treasury Department announced that Coughlin's secretary owned 500,000 ounces of silver and was the largest silver holder in the state of Michigan. The purchase of all this silver had been paid for, in part, by donations to the Radio League of the Little Flower. Some people allege that Coughlin's support of FDR was basically a scheme to make a shitload of money off of silver. Hmm. A lot of people are saying that, huh? <laughs> also, weird that. how nothing has changed about radio. It's still all about selling gold it's and just silver. selling gold. <laughs> like, I'm waiting for you to be like, oh, and then he started selling brain pills yeah, yeah, to yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That's an innovation from Alex Jones, but... Very proud <laughs> the uh, brain that he has spread that to... Uh, Putting sawdust in capsules and selling it to people. Yeah. To fix their brains. <laughs> that he is also poisoning at the same yeah, time. But that he's also sure, giving sure. more poisoning. Yeah. Well, that's how you keep them coming back. Mm-hmm. That razor, razor blade both of which cut the customer philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever the case, by 1934, Coughlin was pissed at the Democrats and announced the start of his own political party, the National Union for Social Justice. Now, the NUSJ was open to people of all religions, as long as that religion was Christianity. (laughs) (laughs) And it called upon Americans to resist communism and socialism. Coughlin also urged the abolition of the Federal Reserve. Mm. Near the end of the year, during one of his wildly popular radio broadcasts, Coughlin announced that there was no longer any hope for capitalism or democracy in the United States of America. Ah, it's the or democracy. <laughs> or democracy. That's, 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 that's so yeah. Some sort of dictatorship might be preferable to the current conditions. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> By the end of 1935, membership in Coughlin's union was somewhere between 1 and 8.5 million people. The radio priest teamed up with Kenneth Smith, a Midwestern preacher who'd worked with Huey Long and Francis Townsend, a political firebrand who wanted to solve the Depression by giving old people huge pensions that they would then be required to support every month. So Mm. he gets up with these other two populist politicians, and together their alliance is believed to be as good for as many as 20 million votes. Okay. They represent a lot of people. Right. So they begin to campaign around the country, laying the ground for a vast union party ticket in the 1936 elections. They had great early success, and now that he was addressing crowds of cheering supporters, Father Coughlin really turned up the (laughs) anti-Semitism. I'm going to play a short segment from a speech he gave in Cleveland. Cleveland! Oh, yes. God, Cleveland. Whenever something bad happens in American history, one-fourth of the time it'll be in Cleveland. Land of the Cleve. Land of burning rivers. (laughs) Cleveland, everything terrible in America starts there, (laughs) or at least goes through Cleveland at some point. It's like a a body of water in flames is the perfect metaphor. (laughs) Here's a short segment from a speech in Cleveland. We are Christian insofar as we believe in Christ's principle of love your neighbor as yourself. And with that principle, I challenge every Jew in this nation (sighs) to tell me that he does not believe in it. What? (laughs) That was one sentence. (laughs) One hell of a sentence. Way to cancel out. That was a sentence with an arc. There's a whole hero's journey (laughs) in that Completely cancels out. The first part of the sentence. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can see, like, oh, that, well, that's your low point. Where are you going to go for the third? Oh, act? dear God. God. <laughs> what Stunning a- orator, though. Yeah. 
good voice. <laughs> I mean, he good, does have a. He's got a good speaking. You voice. can see why people listen to that. Guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a voice you can trust. <laughs> <laughs> so, unfortunately for the Union for Social Justice, but fortunately for the country and world, Coughlin and Smith were a couple of messy bitches who couldn't keep their shit together. <laughs> Coughlin got jealous of the fact that Smith was a better public speaker than him and refused to share the stage at any events. Kenneth Smith went bugfuck nuts shortly thereafter, declared on stage that quote the lunatic fringe is about to take over the government and then decided that the union party was too moderate for him and now his goal was to seize control of the government this oh happens boy. In, yeah october of 1936 that was the october surprise <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, always one you know yeah, it's not like a, a tape of admitting to like sexual assault it's no. just uh, i want to take over the uh, i want to be the dictator <laughs> gonna, hmm. you know i've been talking about how democracy is bad well Surprise. Surprise. that. I'm a fascist. The Union Party was resoundingly defeated in the election. Coughlin disbanded the party and announced his retirement from broadcasting. This lasted until January of the next year when he said, in essence, okay, if y'all want me back that bad, I'll come back. Oh, yeah. Now... I had a lot of trouble deciding how to organize this episode. Bradley Hart, the author of Hitler's American Friends, separates Father Coughlin and the Silver Shirts and the Boon into different chapters. I made a decision to try to do all this chronologically because I think it's important to really get a sense for the pace at which fascism bubbled up in American politics. Uh, it cropped up all over the country in a bunch of different locations and among different sections of American society. And at this point in the story, there was fairly little convergence between the sundry fascist groups. So the Silver Shirts were active in the 1936 election as well. Pelly, their founder, had just recovered from a minor scandal. He'd basically defrauded shareholders in his book production company, Galahad Press, and used it to fund his fascist militia. A fraud. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Shameless fraud. Another uh, strong American tradition. Yeah. He'd been indicted in North Carolina, arrested and convicted, but he was out of jail and back in politics by 1935. He announced to his thousands of followers that God had sent him a message. Another economic crash was coming. He formed the Christian Party, essentially the political wing of the Silver Shirts, in order to rescue America from disaster. Now, President Roosevelt, according to Pelley, was a secret surprise Jew whose real name was Rosenfeld. Oh, my God. <laughs> Alf Landon, the Republican candidate, was conspiring with FDR to destroy the Christian party by hosting his campaign events in the same cities that Pelley was. Since the conspiracy against him was clearly so far-reaching and powerful, Pelley had to get creative in order to build support. I'm going to read a quote from Hitler's American Friends, and y'all are going to like this part. I want you all to think, there was a proud boy recently who was exposed as one of the violent people, I think, in the Portland rallies. Mm -hmm. And it might have been in New York. There were pictures of him with his, I guess, wife yes. or girlfriend, yeah, who, yeah, was, yeah. Uh, who was a black woman, mm -hmm. and, their, and their children. He uh, just started his trial, mm -hmm. yeah. got all clean-shaven. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So keep that in mind as I read this next point. <clears throat> One of his more bizarre ploys involved an effort to convert Native Americans to the Silver Shirt cause. <laughs> Pelly's sudden interest in Native Americans stemmed from a supposed divine realization that the Bureau of Indian Affairs had been taken over by Bolsheviks. Native Americans were therefore natural allies for his political movement because they too were supposedly victims of the Jewish conspiracy Pelly saw everywhere. Among the many problems with this eccentric plan was the fact that Pelly did not actually know many Native Americans. His efforts to reach out by referring to himself as Chief Pelly of the Tribe of Silver and writing articles and pro that could have been lifted from stock characters of Hollywood westerns gained few supporters. But what? Pelly did succeed in getting one actual Native American supporter, mm. a Portland attorney named Elwood Towner. Now, Towner was part Native American, but he saw a money-making opportunity in budding American fascism. He started calling himself Chief Red Cloud and began touring Bund and Silver Shirt meetings across the West Coast. Thousands of people who probably wouldn't have shown up to a lecture on fascism showed up to see Chief Red Cloud for the same reason certain white people today wear feather headdresses at music festivals. Here's how one attendee at a speech described Elwood. 
dressed in full Indian costume, beautiful headdress of white, green, and lavender feathers, a thunderbird design in the center of his headband with a swastika on each side, Oof. pants of buckskin trimmed with fringe and beads, a beaded vest and armbands beaded in swastika and thunderbird design. I found a picture of the guy, and it is... This is cringeworthy. It is pretty special. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you can make out those swastikas on the top. You sure can. <laughs> you sure can. You don't even have to squint. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> surrounding himself by with frauds and charlatans. Oh, my God. God. So I found a fun article on Chief Red Cloud on the website Crosscut. They nice. note that he was famous for calling FDR's New Deal the Jew Deal. Of course. <laughs> why, it's right there. It's right there. It's right in front so of you. So easy. You just leave racism on the table. Yeah. It would have been a crime not to snatch that <laughs> exactly. up. Exactly. Thank you. Furthermore, quote, Towner also began preaching a false history of America, saying that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin had been warned to keep Jews out of America, but were thwarted in getting that provision in the U.S. Constitution, a Native American-inspired document, he said, by none other than Alexander Hamilton. Towner lectures sometimes included readings from an infamously debunked track embraced by violent anti-Semites even today, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Chief Red Cloud claimed that the coming of Germans to the Americas had been, quote, glowingly prophesied by his ancestors. Jews were, quote, the gold worshippers who would corrupt the Aryan Indians and put them in concentration camps. He would often close a speech by saying, quote, our people admire Hitler for this reason that he adopted for his symbol the swastika. It means prosperity, good luck, and Christian government. Hitler also adopted our salute, which means peace be unto you. Advance, friend. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what these mic stands are saying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Advance, advance friend. Yeah. Advance Those friend. gold worshippers. Unlike us, silver worshippers. Yeah. <laughs> and it's important to note that Chief Red Clown went around to all the different. He was at the Bund. He was with the Silver Shirts. He hung out at Italian fascist meetings, I think. And he, he made a lot of money sure. during these years doing this. Like, this seems to have been a grift. I don't know. Maybe he also believed all of this. Yeah. I he, mean, yeah, uh, half yeah. of it's usually a grift, right? Yeah. Like, I mean... Yeah. A lot of it is he's putting on a performance here. Uh, His name is Elwood, and he was a lawyer before this. And now he's Chief Red Cloud, which isn't even a good name. No, it's not. Elwood. Elwood. Makes me think of the Reds. Commies. Exactly. I don't trust this guy. There you go. He might be a secret communist, Mm -hmm. which is the same thing as fascism, according to fascists today. It's the same thing, uh, and one's worse. (laughs) Who can keep track? (laughs) I do love it when you get the Nazis who will both simultaneously deny Nazi crimes and also point out the socialist part of that. It's like, what is even the argument you're making? It didn't happen. Also, they were communists. Communists. (laughs) My favorite thing now is also like, uh, oh, you know, the Nazis were socialists. It's right there in the name, the healthcare and all that stuff. Stuff, and the second the president says he's a nationalist, yeah. they're like, oh, that's good. <laughs> that a bad that's, thing? that's the good part. The good part of the Nazis was the nationalist part. <laughs> Idiots. If they just hadn't had that socialism. It would have been fine. Uh... Fun fact, they did kill all of the socialists. That was what the Night yep. of Long Knives was. Interesting fun fact <laughs> Interesting. there. Uh, that, uh, fun fact that everyone should know but doesn't. They hated yeah, that Marxism they were... and rejected the very idea of like class conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, history. Uh, hierarchies so, and inequality. We don't need to look too closely at history because no. history is boring. And no one learns anything from it ever. Why would you? Why would you Learning's want it not lame. to happen again? Yeah. It was such a ride the last time. Right. Why would you want to... But maybe this time yeah. it'll be different. Mm-hmm. 
So in spite of Chief Red Cloud's endorsement, Pelley's Christian Party did not do well in the 1936 elections. Uh, They only made it on the ballot in Washington State, and they didn't even rack up 2,000 votes in Washington. So the German-American Bund was, of course, also active in the 1936 election. They took a different tact than their other far-right compatriots. They did not create a political party since they were explicitly not supposed to be a political party. They instead threw their support behind the party they saw as most being supportive of Nazi Germany. Hmm. So in October of 1936, Fritz Kuhn announced a Bund to all his members, ordering them to vote for Alf Landon, the Republican presidential candidate. Mm. He claimed that Landon's administration would have, quote, more favorable commercial relations with Germany. He also attacked Roosevelt's, quote, preference for the Jewish element and his placing of too many Jews in public office. Mm. Landon did not win. Sorry. End of story. End of story. (laughs) You're dead and forgotten now, Alf Landon. And we all lived happily ever after. Yeah. Oh, but he's great. got so many so more the, pages in his hand. I do. <laughs> so the party that would have been most beneficial to uh, the Nazis. The Nazis with the, the Republicans. That's what the That's Nazis thought. Mm-hmm. That seems to be what how the Nazis thought about. Oh, this. yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. So the 1936 elections were kind of a defeat across the board for the American fascist movement. But the increased visibility they'd gotten in the press and through the speaking tours of people like Coughlin and Pelly and of course Chief Red Cloud <laughs> had made the country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> meant that as 1937 dawned, more Americans than ever were curious about and sympathetic towards fascism. A Gallup poll taken that year asked respondents whether they'd prefer to live under fascism or communism. 45% of Americans picked fascism. Yeah. Idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking. (laughs) Dummy. I feel like this is going to work out great for me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So uh, we're going to get into what came next for fascism in America. But first, what comes next for ads on this pod? Keep it going. Yes, there it is. <laughs> Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. I'm Scott Weinberger journalist and former deputy sheriff in my new podcast series, cold blooded, the Apollo Jim murders. I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter, Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. We're back. We're talking about fascism. Uh, so, but why? <laughs> because it's not relevant to things happening today. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I'm tired of things being relevant no, today. No, it's just Oof. useless. So the late 30s was a time of great growth and increasing acceptance of fascism in America. The German-American Bund opened a network of summer camps in the United States. As an undercover reporter in the Bund, John C. Metcalf later testified, quote, American boys and girls sing hymns to Der Fuhrer and to the Vaterland they have never seen. Their youthful feet goose-step in a march of racial and religious hatred. The minds and souls of these babes in the woods are a fertile field for the propaganda of the Bund. The it's Hitler Youth writer. thing, yeah. Uh, yeah. This really bothers me, this part. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I really don't like it, this part. Because <laughs> that's one of the most, uh, maybe not the most chilling thing about Nazi Germany, but it is chilling to me when I think about Super. the indoctrination and what yeah. they what they did to these kids. And... Yeah, it's the scariest part. Yep. And now, it's unclear how many total American children went through Bund training camps and received Nazi indoctrination. Bradley Hart, author of Hitler's American Friends, estimates around 7,200 per year. So that would have been oh my God. 20 to 30,000 probably. The biggest camp, Siegfried, was located in New York and turned into something of a Nazi town right in the East Coast. <sighs> there was a small neighborhood of houses and the whole camp was owned collectively by the homeowners on the land. Quote, Adolf Hitler Street was a major thoroughfare oh, and the other no. streets were similarly named <laughs> for Nazi bigwigs. Guests from Germany were frequently hosted at Siegfried, and during the summer, the OD trained there with rifles and other firearms. Promising members of the youth division from all over the country were also sent to Siegfried to further their education and training, making it effectively the center of boon training operations nationwide. Major celebrations, such as the 4th of July celebrations that began this chapter, could attract tens of thousands of people from New York City to Siegfried's leafy surroundings. So... Tens of thousands of Americans being like, I'm not on board with the Nazis, but I want to see their fireworks show. And thousands and thousands of kids. Yeah. Being... It's just like a community thing. Yeah. I bet all those little Nazis grew up to be adult Nazis and I bet it didn't procreated have any impact. children that are now running 
maybe not mm. now, but I bet we'll never have an episode where we talk about what some of the people who went to these summer camps went on to do. I will not take that. Back. <laughs> <laughs> now, on an interesting side note, the Nazi Homeowners Association that owned Siegfried continued to be a thing after the Bund collapsed at the outbreak of war. They even had rules about what races you couldn't be to live there. The Board of Homeowners had to sign off that any new buyers met their quote racial qualifications. You want to guess how long this went on? How long this Nazi Homeowners Association? I don't was know a... that I do want to guess. Decades. A lawsuit found it in violation of the Fair Housing Act in 2015. No, nice. no, Hell yes. no. That's... No. That is way past what I thought you were going to say. I was prepared to be shocked at 1995 or I know, something. I right? 2015. Goodness. That's the good stuff right there. That's, that's, the, the, good that's stuff. the good bad stuff. That's the good bad stuff. Wow. Oh. Now, I bet you're all wondering just what the fuck went on in America's Nazi summer camps. Good news! <laughs> Charles Bukowski went to one as a oh. kid and wrote extensively about the experience. He became a member of the Bund in 1938 at age 18 and remained one until the outbreak of war in 1941. Later in life, he wrote a novel, Ham on Rye, where he basically fictionalized his real experiences as a young Nazi and explains why the movement was so compelling to him. Bukowski was born in Germany, so he was a, a yeah. first-generation German-American immigrant. Quote, I had no freedom, I had nothing. With Hitler around, maybe I'd get a piece of ass now and then and more than a dollar a week allowance. As far as I could rationalize, I had nothing to protect. Having been born in Germany, there was a natural loyalty, and I didn't like to see the whole German nation, the people, depicted everywhere as monsters and idiots. In the movie theaters, they sped up the newsreels to make Hitler and Mussolini look like frenetic madmen. Also, with all the instructors being anti-German, I found it personally impossible to simply agree with them. Out of sheer alienation and a natural contrariness, I decided to align myself against their point of yeah, view. That's how it happens. That's exactly it. <laughs> I mean, like, that's actually very well said. Because yeah, like, he's a great artist who right. later... Yeah, yeah and yeah. self-reflective and uh, yeah. early on the ball in terms of like, that <laughs> yeah. is exactly that's it. That's a like, thousand percent. My a piece God. of ass. And just like... Yeah. But yeah, but like that feeling Just like of, stamp it 2016. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's... Ugh. I'm tired of you telling me that my people are bad and... Yeah. Yeah, which is a little bit fair. There was unfair demonization of the Germans during World War One. Sure. They weren't really sure. any worse than any of the other sides. Everyone was garbage in World War One. It was right. a garbage war. Right. But yeah, like, world <laughs> wars in general. Aren't like... Nobody comes across looking great. Yeah. In, in a worldwide <laughs> yeah. war. Yeah, where we decide civilians and civilian cities are acceptable targets. Yeah. <laughs> Universally, nobody's the great guy. Right. Although it's just really easy to look good next to the Nazis. It really is. It, it really is. is. Yeah. Super easy. Uh, natural contrarian. Yeah. That's. Mm-hmm. That is. Bukowski also gives a typically blunt rundown of one of their meetings. Quote, we went down into a cellar. They had this great big American flag there. We all stood up to pledge allegiance to the flag. Then we started talking about the communist menace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So I want to note that I learned all about this from a UC Boulder undergraduate honors thesis by Patrick Rodriguez. So thank you, Patrick. I probably wouldn't have found this otherwise. It's very useful. Uh, He also describes how the armed wing of the Bund, the OD, was formed and trained into something approaching a militia, even while the Bund continued to maintain a banal, uh, friendly exterior. Hmm. Quote, Composing roughly 10% of the Boone's membership, the OD, despite its name, which translates into Armed Guard, was an unarmed ceremonial organization reserved for ambitious young men between the ages of 18 and 25. Because it offered close proximity to the Bundesfuhrer, full access to the Bund's recreational facilities, such as Camp Siegfried in upstate New York, and the promise of a steady wage, young men flocked to the OD for support. For less athletic individuals, the Bund offered other possibilities for economic advancement. The Bund often used its propaganda machinery to promote the small businesses of pro-German, pro-American members, such 
was the case with Cafe Hindenburg, a cocktail lounge in Manhattan named after Paul von Hindenburg. So this is a complicated situation. There are other reasons at this point other than just being an inherent monster that people support these organizations. Like Bukowski grew up like... Well, I think that's important when you're looking at the rise of any of these movements and Nazi Germany. It's not a lot of it because, oh, we hate Jews. It's because we are afraid and we don't know what to do next and we really are in kind of dire straits and this is a different answer. Everything is fucked up and confusing. Exactly. And no one knows what's going to happen next. And that's why those are the the environments where these things happen. That's literally the birth of American fascism is that Lawrence Dennis being like, Capitalism seems like it's on its way out. Something's got to replace it. The Great it. Depression. Yeah. Right. Everyone's looking for answers. And yeah. sometimes grifters might take advantage of that. Yeah. They might. What, what, what's your issue with Chief Red Cloud? <laughs> uh, nothing. Nothing. He sounds uh, trustworthy. I feel like uh, he's the hero of this episode. <laughs> you feel uh, like that, but just uh, sit tight. <laughs> just, just hold but, on. Uh, yeah. So Hitler actually cut off funding to the German-American Bund in 1938. Some of that probably had to do with the fact that John Metcalf, that undercover reporter, started publishing his articles from the inside of the Bund in 1937. There's a lot to talk about. Metcalf's a, a real hero and like mm-hmm. one of these journals who gets inside this organization and like both writes good articles about it, but also provides the government with information yeah. about right. crimes that they're committing. He's a real cool guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> big fan of John Metcalf. Yeah, different kind of podcast. Different <laughs> kind of podcast. <laughs> Behind the guys who weren't bad. Yeah. 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 Um, so it seems like the funding to the boom in, in front of the bastards with in fists, front, yeah, <laughs> punching the punching bastards. The bastards. Yeah. There you go. Now it seems like the Bund's funding was cut off because uh, the Fuhrer was again worried about upsetting U.S. public opinion. If so, that's actually more evidence for how out of touch Hitler was with the United States. In June of 1938, Gallup asked Americans which was worse, fascism or communism. Nearly half of respondents didn't answer. 32% said communism. Just 23% found fascism more dangerous. Hmm. Now, Ernst Homstangel, a.k.a. Putzi, was a good friend of Hitler's and an American. For some reference, Hitler was in love with his wife for a while, and she stopped him from killing himself after he fucked up the Munich Beer Hall putsch. Fuck he that, had a weird kid. crush on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I mean... No, I... Yeah, it's... it's that's mean. I'm not going to bag on Helena. I'm going to bag on Putzi. Sure. I mean, they all were probably pretty fashy. I mean, right? That <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like none of them are great people. Yeah. Putzi was later interviewed by the U.S. government about Hitler because he, he had a falling out. He, he wasn't around for the whole World War II thing. Mm. Um, that whole thing. That whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hanstangle said that Hitler had a, quote, wildly superficial understanding of American culture. I never really succeeded in bringing home the importance of America as an integral factor in European politics to Hitler. He wanted to hear all about the skyscrapers and was fascinated by details of technical progress, but failed utterly to draw logical conclusions from the information. Now, Hitler did at one point express interest in making a pact with the Ku Klux Klan. So he never really seemed all that motivated to push fascism in America. But in 1938, American fascism seemed to be doing pretty well without Hitler's help. Pelly published a manual. Yeah, take that, Hitler. Yeah, take that, Hitler. (laughs) We don't need you. You never believed in us. In 1938, uh, Pelly published a manual, A Million Silver Shirts by 1939, and announced that each state needed to sign up 100 new fascists every day. The Silver Shirts launched a major recruitment drive, ixnaying the anti-Semitism and really hampering on communism. One Washington state fascist wrote that year to a critic, The only reason we make open opposition to the Jews is because they are the ones who support communism, which is atheism, and are out to destroy Christianity. We are not Jew haters as reported. We are only against their system. I do not hate a single Jew, but I do feel sorry for them. I do not hate a single person on this earth, including all Jews. But I do feel sorry for them. (laughs) You really 
talked about the Jews a lot there, yeah. buddy. Yeah. For a guy who's not an anti-Semite, you really dropped. Sure are. Really, really emphasize Your that. Your so focus Jew- seems to be. Um... They're Jewish and they're atheists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want to yeah. make well, sure we're communists. all communists. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. All communists are all atheists. Communists atheists, are atheists. Jews. Yeah. 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 Who listen unfailingly to their rabbi because they're atheists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get. I get this it. Totally yeah. logically consistent. Honestly, checks out. Yeah. Really seems to hold together tight. So the mild rhetoric was in direct contrast to their behavior. Pelly, the chief, traveled with a 40-man bodyguard, all of whom carried pistols openly and basically told law enforcement in Seoul towns, what are you going to do about it? Also in 1938, a silver shirt officer told a Milwaukee reporter that all members of the Legion had been advised to buy sawed-off shotguns and 2,000 rounds of ammo in order to protect, quote, white Christian America. Uh-huh. Yeah. So President Roosevelt was obviously not super happy with the... Uh, violent Nazi rhetoric uh, and the militias. One would hope. (laughs) One would would hope. He'd have his finger on that button. Uh, He was particularly concerned with Pelly and asked the DOJ if it would be possible to sue him for libel. They weren't able to do that initially, but this does start a chain of reactions that leads to prosecutions for Pelly and the gradual end of the silver shirts. They don't wind up taking America by storm. Um, But there were plenty of other American fascists, don't Mm. you worry. Uh, One of them was John Winrod. Uh, John Winrod was also a huge fan of the protocols of the elders of Zion and, of course, of Father Coughlin. And when Father Coughlin's union party fell apart in 1936, Winrod decided to try and pick up the pieces. In 1938, one of Kansas's Senate seats was open, and Winrod decided the Democratic incumbent looked vulnerable. John Winrod's plan was to win election in 1938 and then ride the surely forming red wave into the Republican nomination for the 1940 presidential election. He started a radio show and bought time on stations all over the country, mostly lamenting the state of the economy and making veiled references to Jews. Quote, Perhaps you have thought the United States Congress controls the nation's money. This most decidedly is not the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who decided that? <laughs> I'll give you one guess and three letters. <laughs> oh, no. So, uh, Winrod attacked Roosevelt for going after the fascist powers without equally criticizing the Soviet Union. Winrod harangued voters twice a day on the air, and he gave speeches that attracted audiences of thousands. He was only defeated in Kansas because the state Republican Party united against him and convinced former Governor Clyde Reed to want to run an opposition. The Republicans successfully opposed him and voted uh, not fascist into office. Winrod still received 53,000 votes. Wow. But hey, the Republican Party, unlike mm-hmm. the episode that will have run like the week before <laughs> right. this, where they failed in like three states to stop yeah. fascists, they, they have their act together in this situation. Right, they're aware and they're not cool with it. They're like, uh, boy, we so don't want... something. Yeah, we don't want people to mistake conservatism for fascism, so we should oppose fascists. Yeah. That's so refreshing. <laughs> yeah. What if we uh, if only, give it a few decades? <laughs> if only 2018 Republicans would take a leaf God. out of 1938 Republicans. <laughs> so, uh, Father Coughlin was also active in 1938. In January of that year, he founded the Christian Front, a nationwide organization dedicated to fighting communism. Jews were forbidden from joining. Mm. Members were encouraged to arm themselves and regularly train at gun ranges. The Christian Front proved popular with the same sort of people who become Proud Boys today. Soon, mobs of them were beating up Jews on the street in various cities. Some even called themselves Father Coughlin's brown shirts. It became known that during rallies where Father Coughlin would speak, the Christian Front members would fight with anti-fascist protesters. God, because go. again... Get out of here, man. <laughs> no, nothing ever changes in all of history. Everything is the same. So... I hate this. <laughs> it's it's pretty wild. It is. How, how it's just the and same thing. And it's like 
It's just all stuff like, yeah, I'm like yeah. you see this parallel, but then just like every single thing he's saying. <laughs> it's a little on the nose. It's so on the it's nose. It's like a guy covered in pro-Trump propaganda stickers mailing bombs to all the people Trump It hates. is like that. That would never happen. On the nose. That sounds <laughs> like, unbelievable. And yet... And yet. <laughs> and yet. In February 1939, Fritz Kuhn held an event that would prove to be the apex of the German-American Bund's power. 22,000 Bundists and sympathetic listeners showed up at Madison Square Garden for a gigantic America-themed Nazi rally. It was billed as a mass demonstration for true Americanism and a celebration of George Washington's birthday. In the <laughs> book Swastika Nation, Arnie Bernstein writes, quote, the unprecedented event was really intended to be the German-American Bund's apothesis, proof positive to America and the world, as well as Berlin, that the American Nazis were here to stay. The rally was to be Kuhn's shining moment, an elaborate pageant and vivid showcase of all he had built in three years. Kuhn's dream of a swastika nation would be on display for the whole world, right in the heart of what Berlin Press called the semitized metropolis of New York. Oh. Nearly 100,000 counter-protesters also showed up. Mm. You might Wait, say that number again? 100,000. Wow. Almost. You might call them anti-fascists. I, one you would could, call that. You what if call I them wanted, Antifa. What if I want to shorten that word? Yeah, 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 that might be a good yeah, way to do it. easier way to or say antif- it. Antif, 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 we'll, we'll figure antif, it out. Yeah. Opposite of, okay. 1,700 police officers were deployed to keep the Nazis safe. At the time, this yeah. was the largest show of force in NYPD history. There is quite a lot of video of this rally, and it is, it is fucking chilling. It's been cut into a short documentary called A Night at the Garden, which you can watch online. The rally stage has a full marching band and a giant painting of George Washington that honestly looks exactly like a fucking screen grab from a Bioshock game. Like, it is, <laughs> it is that on the nose. It is. In addition, includes a man I can only describe as Sig Heiling Ted Cruz. Because fucking look at that. Oh, I just you look, shared this the other day. I saw look, this. Look Unbelievable. At that shit. Look yes. at that shit. What? Yes. That's fucking Nazi in... Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. I'll put that picture up too. Like it's ju- it just it's uncanny. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. really uncanny. No, that's got to be a, re- a relation. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really close look, right? It's really close. It all checks out. Yeah. So the rally opened with the Pledge of Allegiance, slightly Nazified, and I think you guys should hear this. Okay. All right. <laughs> if I have to. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Captive audience. I pledge allegiance to mine. Come. Come. I recommend watching the documentary and seeing this because like, the visuals of this are pretty, pretty goddamn striking. Ugh. Undivided allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and the Republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. It's it's like a fucking screen grab from a bad alternate history movie. Yeah, um, I pledge, what did they say? I pledge undivided allegiance was like, wow, that's a... That's a wrinkle on that. (laughs) Yeah. So, Fritz Kuhn took the stage next and began to deliver a speech, at which point a Jewish-American protester who worked as a janitor in Madison Square Garden rushed onto the stage and was horribly beaten and stripped mostly naked by the Nazis. He had to be rescued by the NYPD. The whole moment was actually filmed, and we are going to watch it. Oh, good. Yeah. We are actively fighting for, under our charter, first, a social, just, white, Gentile ruled United States. Second, 
central controlled labor union, free from Jewish Moscow directed domination. hard to watch. Yeah, it's rough. It's real rough. The good news is that this rally at Madison Square Garden would prove to be the high water mark for the German-American Bund, but not, it turned out, for fascism in America. When we come back in part two, we're going to talk about the fall of Fritz Kuhn, one potential candidate for American Fuhrer, and the rise of a second candidate, Charles Lindbergh. Hmm. Ooh. So, <laughs> that was so upsetting. It's it is really, chilling. it really makes you feel like wanting to die. It's, it's bad. It's real bad. And like, oh my god, so not far off. No, 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 no. And like knowing who's in charge and like what he wants and like what he's like into and what he accepts yeah. and like it's. It's one of the things that is interesting to me. We will save the explicitly political stuff for the end of part two. But this book, Hitler's American Friends, is the second book that I've talked about heavily on this podcast this year, the first being The Death of Democracy, Mm -hmm. both of which are written by scholars and historians who focus on the history of the Third Reich and the end of the Weimar Republic. Multiple of them now have all been like, I should really need to put out a book that specifically addresses the things that are happening right. now that happened back, because it's so similar. Wait, they're putting <laughs> well, books out now? Yeah, this book was written. Yeah. Hitler's American yeah. Friends was written in reaction to the 2016 election. Really? So was The Death of Democracy. Really? Yeah. They did this quick. They put them out because they were like, oh my God, this is the thing I've studied my entire life and it Man, seems to be happening again. That's the thing that we don't talk about enough. <laughs> or we do talk about it. But well, we talk we about talk it. We talk about it, but people don't talk about it. Because in many ways, it's like, yeah, there are similarities. Yeah. Uh, there are things that hopefully aren't going to happen, but there are things that have happened that didn't happen. Like yeah. there are things that this is further along yeah. than ever before here. At least. Yeah. Yeah. When people were calling George W. Bush a Nazi or Hitler, it was left-wing protesters, but it was not academics. It was not people who had specifically spent their life studying this period in history. They're all coming out now. You don't find any being like, no, the comparisons to fascism and Nazism are overblown. It's like, they're all like, no, this is really concerning. Every single one (laughs) of them. Every single one of them. And it's always people (laughs) who study the part before the stuff that everyone yeah. before like, all of the killing right yeah and like every single person is like but it's like if 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 he were a fascist could you say he was a fascist well that's the second half yeah like we're that's not right. in the second half. we're not yet. in part that's two like, yet that's what it's so maddening uh it's and like, like yeah. self-proclaimed like intellectuals and like thought leaders who like just dismiss it outright when like no literally people who study this for a living are talking about it and the guy who came up with Godwin's law has specifically said like no 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 you you, do it (laughs) do it it's this is the time (laughs) this is the time (laughs) and like Uh, I didn't realize that both of those books were uh they're not the only ones written in direct reaction to the current things happening in America by scholars of that but they're the two we've talked about this yeah Um, and even that, um, I forget his name came out and was like, t- talk about the, the similarity between Mitch yeah. McConnell. Yeah. Uh, and just like, yeah, he's the guy. Yeah. Who, he, okay, I might have been Kurt von Schleicher, one of the Hindenburg. guys. It was, oh, to, to Hindenburg, right, right, yeah. right, right. Um, and just like, yeah, uh, he, he literally used the phrase, the grave digger of democracy. Yeah. Uh, because he spent his entire career obsessed with money and power and doing his best to suppress democracy. 
and go along with yeah. whoever gives him more power uh, well, to do the things he wants. We have failed to not talk about politics at the end of this. But, <laughs> we're going to get into more Nazis next time on Thursday. And there's going to be some fun stuff in this one. Oh, I can't it's, wait. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be really neat. No more Chief Red Cloud, tragically. Oh, some oh, other, some really, he's really played fun his stuff. part, you know. <laughs> he sure did. And there is still a surprise reveal ahead. So I'm yeah, yeah. We're gonna. Uh, am I excited? We're, am we're I not talk excited? More about Lawrence Dennis, <laughs> founder of American Fascism. Turns out there's a twist. What a treat! God. <laughs> All right, pluggables, plug. Yeah, uh, Patreon.com slash some more news. Twitter.com slash some more news. YouTube.com. Uh, YouTube.com. Look, search for some more news for all of the videos that we talk about this kind of stuff and other stuff. And check out our podcast, Even More News. Even More on News. On all the podcast places. Dr. Mr. Cody is my Twitter handle. It's my personal thing. Mine's Katie Stoll. Katie with a Y. Yeah. Like Katy Perry. Like Katy Perry. I'm Robert Evans. Like the guy who produced Godfather. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, I Write Okay. You can find this podcast on the internet at BehindTheBastards.com. You can find us on Tee Public Behind the Bastards. Buy some t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love my tees. I will use the money to, I don't know, sometimes I watch a video about a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden and I need to buy beer. That's what you can help with if you enjoy this podcast. Would you call that some t-shirts. research adjacent? Or? I would. I do write it off on my taxes. Okay, oh, yeah. Sanity liquor. It's part, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Medication. Medication. Mm-hmm. Journalism medication. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can find this website on the internet at BehindTheBastards.com where you will find, among other things, Nazi Ted Cruz. Oh my God. It's, 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 it's uncanny. It's really surreal. It's beautiful. He's you guys beautiful are going to love it. Yeah. All right. This has been the podcast. I have been Robert Evans. And once more, I love about 40% of you. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts hi guys nancy grace here host of podcast crime stories with nancy grace I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.